uh, our uh, our habit, our standard here is Bible teaching. Should never have to say that. That should just just be a given. But uh, we we do. We're at John chapter six today. I'll get around to reading the text just a little bit later. It'll fit better. We're going to talk about when life gets heavy, applying the muscles of our Christian conviction. In order to enter into eternal life, one must be reconciled to God, our Creator. To be reconciled to God, one must come to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus, and be born again, just as we saw in illustration this morning. To be redeemed in Christ, one must, in faith, recognize and repent of our sins that have separated us from God, our Creator. And at the foot of the cross, metaphorically, we must trust in Him to pardon all of our sins under the flow of His atoning blood. In order to walk with Him after we've done that, to walk with Him in abundant life, and to enrich our fuller participation in the joy in the joy of the Lord, we must appropriate some truths about Christ. I'm talking about that this morning, but applying our, the muscles of our Christian conviction. Now, because all of us humans are broken souls, including this pastor, even after we are saved from our sins, and most of us in this room have been, it's not, just church, it's not a matter of churchiness, just being a, some kind of church member, even after we're saved from our sins and reconciled to God, our Creator, and have fellowship with our Maker, there is still in every one of us a hangover from the old life as long as we're in this mortal flesh. All of that baggage from the old life is with us as long as we are in this flesh. It did not go away when through Christ, our mediator, we, by God's grace, came to know God. It did not just all fly away like a bird off the shoulder. Though we are now forever redeemed in Christ, at present, every one of us who know him, we're a people in process. We're not finished yet, not by any stretch. We're a people becoming what God intends us to be in the end. We're not there yet. The Spirit of God works in us in this temporal life through the Word and through our God-ordained, that is, providential experience to hammer out the kinks on the anvil of testing. Consequently, one of the constants for you and me in our present life is that the enemy of our peace in Christ, we understate it, called called stress, hangs around. I would suggest that everyone in this room, probably, unless you're very unusual, is feeling some level of stress about this or that or the other. I know some of you are. The new kinds of stress in a believer's life come in forms of great temptation, maybe disappointed expectations, 
and some of you are probably dealing with feelings of inadequacy and insufficiency and just coping. Somehow the path that God has carved out for you and I, there are different ones, to follow, seems to call sometimes for more than we have to give. I expect many of you are there. The need to keep up the pace and find a way to keep it all going induces that form of mental fatigue and tension that we call, it's hardly the word for it, stress. Stress robs living of its joy. Every day becomes another test of survival. I would ask you to raise your hands, but I won't. But I know many of you can relate to that. I'm going to tell you a story that many of you perhaps have heard, but some haven't. It's still a very good illustration of what I'm talking about. There's a story of a little boy who was digging a hole, proud of himself, when he encountered a man-sized rock beneath the the surface of the soil. With his father observing nearby, he dug all around it so he could leverage it and move it out of his way. Finally, he started trying to lift it out of his way. Sounds like a metaphor of life. All by himself. His father was working nearby, and he heard his son grunting and groaning and hard breathing, heavy breathing. So he wandered over to check what was the problem. Standing over the youngster down in the hole, he watched as the overmatched little fella futilely tugged at the big rock still half buried in the ground. In youthful macho, we've seen it, the little boy ignored his father's presence. And in a vain attempt to show that he was man enough to handle it all, he kept groaning and grunting, trying to move that little rock. Do you feel like you're trying to move a rock, groaning and grunting, anybody? Finally, his half-amused, half-worried <coughs> father excuse me, asked the little guy, Son, why don't you use all your strength? Almost impudently, the little fellow didn't find that funny. What do you think I'm doing? He shot back impatiently. Well, said his daddy, you've got my strength available, but you haven't invited me to assist you. Then there's the threat of exposure. Circumstances put our ego at risk. Circumstances want to blow away the facade of incompetence, threaten that. We build up all around us. Our slip starts showing, to use an old image. We're fully human, and we have our limits like all the rest. Well, folks, we've got a passage before us that's going to deal with all of that. I love it. It's a shorter version, but it's just to our need. Chapter 6 of John None of this may seem to relate, but then maybe you'll see it right away. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, otherwise known as Tiberias. Well, naturally, by this time, Jesus doing all these signs and wonders. This is the second one that John records. 
A great multitude was following Jesus because they were seeing the signs. A sign is like a camel that carries a load on its back. It's a sign of who he is. The signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up into a mountain. If you're going to fight a battle, it's good to get a vantage point. And then he sat with his disciples. Now it so happened that the feast of the Passover, the feast of the Jews, the big one, they were all big, but this is the biggie. It was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that great multitude, most of them very curious. They had seen it. They had heard it. They couldn't get enough of it. But the vast majority of them were not yet believers. Most of them never did become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were people who liked to follow the sensational. He saw them coming to Jesus. And Jesus said to Philip, I paraphrase, Philip, we got a little problem here. How, he asked rhetorically, are we going to feed all these people? And Philip more or less said, beats the heck out of me. (laughs) Philip was a practical man, like many of you, practical man or woman. He just looked at reality and he said, gosh, I don't know. 200 denarii, that's denarius was a day's pay. 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for this crowd. For everyone to receive a little. Don't see how that's going to work. Then one of his disciples, Andrew. Most of us tend to be like Philip. Andrew was a little bit of an uptick. Not much, but a little bit. Simon Peter's brother. He heard the question, as all of them did. He said, oh, you know, this little kid out here. I don't know how he knew that, but he did. He has five barley. Those are poor loaves. Five barley loaves. And uh, he has some fish. But he immediately... What's that? But what's that among so many? But at least he had some idea. Jesus said, this is startling. Jesus was always a person of order. Have the people sit down. So the disciples began to organize this event. There was much grass in that place. It was suitable. So the men sat down. In number, they were about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given them, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. How's this happening? And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, this is interesting. Hey guys, go out there and gather up all the leftover fragments that nothing may be may be lost. So they gathered them up. Verse 13, they filled 12 baskets. Well, how many apostles were there? 12. Filled 12 baskets full. 
left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign, this great miracle, a sign of who he is, we call it a messianic sign. They said, oh my gosh, this is of truth, the prophet, capital P, that Moses spoke about who's to come into the world, Deuteronomy 18. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come, take him by force and install him by force as the son of David, the messianic king, the new Alexander the Great, he withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. Stop right there. Now in this narrative, whether you see it or not, I'll show it to you. We see muscles of conviction that power Christian belief through the waves of doubt and distress. I tell you, they power mine. And I know they power many of yours, some of you going through real difficulty. Always are. Any Sunday I'm up here, that's true of members of this congregation. Some we know about, some we don't know about. But these, whether you've analyzed it or not, these are things that that sustain you. If you're not there, you will be. I assure you, if you know the Lord, you will be. Not necessarily the same level, maybe not as many, but you will go through these things. Maybe in work, maybe in marriage, maybe with your children. You just name it. In John's record of this sign, we see the person and work of Jesus on glorious display. Jesus performs here a stupendous miracle that points beyond the work itself to the greatness of the miracle worker. These convictions that I derive out of this passage need to be constantly reviewed by whom? By you and me. And they need to be renewed. They spell the difference between a triumphant Christian and a defeated one. So the first thing I want you to notice crops up in verse 5. I want you to take note of our Lord's total compassion. Folks, we forget that. I want you to mark Jesus' sensitivity to and compassion for the material needs of the multitude seeking after him. Whenever people are moving toward Jesus, whether they ultimately get there or not, that will be met in some way. He cares for your needs. Who are you out there? What are you dealing with? What heaviness is on your heart on this Thanksgiving weekend? What do you feel like you just can't live much longer? Your heaviness is on his heart. He cares about your needs. That is his heart. That was intended. That's why John put it here. He learned that. Because it's it's a living parable. And it's telling you and it's telling me as we read this, we have a Savior who cares about your needs. Some days you may not feel like that. It's not that he will always demonstrate or usually demonstrate his compassion in such an eye-popping, supernatural way. That's not what we're saying. This only illustrates for the record what Jesus can do. That's what I need to know. I don't need to know what he will do. There are many times I don't know what on earth he's going to do. 
but I need to know what he can do. Often in my prayers, that's what I say. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. But by faith, I know what you can do. And that's what Jesus is showing here, what he can do. If he wishes to emblazon his glory on the face of events, which he intends to coax deeper belief in those who come, he came to save, or to condemn those who chose not to receive him. He does that kind of thing all the time. And if you've walked with the Lord any time, you've seen it. Trouble is, sometimes we don't remember. We'll come to that. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 6, we're going to talk mainly about this, not exclusively, but mainly. I want you to note, it's it's one of the muscles of my Christian conviction, but it should be all of us. I want you to notice his habitual strategy in orchestrating our experience. Every day you wake up, every week you live, every month that passes, every year, you're going to be confronted with a matrix of experience, divinely orchestrated, maybe things that seem small, maybe really big things. His habitual strategy is testing us. Got to talk about that. First, let me give you the definition of a test. We, there it is, a definition of a spiritual test. It's not to discover what is in our hearts, though that will happen. It's not to, for God to discover what's in our minds, but to reveal to us and maybe others what he already knows. For in John 2, back four chapters, in John 2, verse 25, Jesus said about a certain group of people, or it's said about Jesus, that he didn't need an investigation. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The Lord knows what's in every one of us. Right this instant, he knows what's crossing our minds. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He doesn't need to do a deep archaeological research into your life to figure that out. It's mainly about him getting us figured out to ourselves. So that's the definition of a test. Now let's consider the function of tests. A test is not intended, as I say, to enlighten God. What is its function? Testing serves several purposes, which I'm going to let us catalog. Not necessarily all at the same time. Context is our best guide as to what the Lord is up to. Testing serves a developmental or growth function. By putting us in a posture where we act out our positive moral and spiritual leanings, God works in such a way as to develop the muscles of our righteous reflexes. It helps habituate us to righteousness. Test do. Making a choice once becomes easier the next time around. Repetition 
hardened choices into habits, and habits form character. What's the Lord up to in your life? To shape you into the moral image of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his project. His project is not to make you feel happy, 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 clappy, clappy, clappy. That's not his project in your life. His project is not to make you a winner at work. Ah, That's not his project. He may, but that it too may be a testing. His project is not to make you prosperous. His project is not necessarily to keep you safe on the road, though he may do that. He does do that. God's project, the spirit of God's project in your life is to make you a disciple, a disciple which spells walking worthy of him and be morally conformed to his moral image. That's what he's up to. You got to get that. That's what this testing stuff is all about, not to bring that about in your life. You know, once you get that, once your dreams and your ambitions, hey, they may be realized, but just understand, the Lord's not there working in your life just to help you achieve those dreams and those ambitions. I can tell you that because it's never happened to me. Many of them have been dashed, crashed beyond redemption, I do believe. (laughs) Beyond redemption. So that's a developmental or growth function. That's why you're tested. That's one of the reasons. Testing also serves what we would call a judicial function. Pop up here a minute. A discovery function is to expose gem to gem. God knows what I am, but he gives us testing and it brings out the stuff. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good, but brings it out. Sometimes I'm encouraged by what I see. I'm encouraged because through testing I discovered that's not the way I would have done it 30 years ago or the way I would have felt. That's God's work. That's good. Thank you, Lord. At other times, I say, ooh, I thought I was, I thought I was past that. Not so fast, Jim. Some of that stuff is still down there. When choices are forced upon us, God knows this, we tip our moral hand. I tip mine, you tip yours. We announce who we really are by our actions or sometimes inactions. We vindicate the reward or discipline. Sometimes it's reward. God says, that a boy, that's a girl. You're acting like mine. You're acting like a son of God, a daughter of God. That is good. And you say, that's your grace. But sometimes we see that we're not acting Christianly. What's your ministry in this world? What's you all about? What's the first thing you are to do? People always are talking about doing or going. It's not to go to the third world and be a missionary. I don't say that's never God's purpose. It's not to get in your church, your local church, 
and find a structured ministry and say, I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge. It's none of that garbage. It is to be, to be, to be a Christian. If you want to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to have a cutting edge, if you want to make a difference in people's lives, your wife, your husband, your family, your children, all of that in the workplace, you want to make a go there and be. Just be a Christian. Be a Christian. And in doing so, we vindicate the reward or the discipline or the judgment God imposes when we refuse to be. Thirdly, testing humbles the self-confident and the self-reliant. Many of us, especially in a church like ours, so many of you people like Ping Lee, so many of you, you're highly educated. You're very good at what you do. Others may not be highly educated in terms of degree, but you're very good at what you what you do. One of our men had a job in a in a company, I think it was a tech company. He doesn't have a shiny degree, but he's got an inventive mind, so they gave him a job. We've got this that needs done. We need this not working right. We need this fixed. In other words, we need you to do some kind of invention. Very competent that has a whole book of all the things that he's invented. Some of you don't have a shiny degree, but you're very good. I've seen people in my life, believers, in my lifetime, saw one when I was a college kid. And uh, he was high up in Appalachian Electric Power Company. He didn't have a degree to his name, but, oh, man, was he smart. The company saw that, and they promoted him right near the top. Some of you are like that. You're very smart. You're very good at what you do. But sometimes we get overconfident. Sometimes we think we're better than we are. We are so proud of ourselves that we want to show ourselves how good we are. And the Lord sometimes has to deal with that. He has to deal us a dose of humility, and he'll deal that sometimes with testing. He'll put us in positions where we need to come to the ends of ourselves. Get us in position where our reserves are shot. We find ourselves at the end of our normal resources. Anybody feel that way? Come a day when all of a sudden we have to admit failure or inadequacy to face the circumstances that beggar all of our defenses. We've had all of these defenses. Well, the defenses went flop. We now have a choice of sinking into despair, that's through testing, or casting ourselves wholly upon his care and competence. That's a good place to be. A very good place to be. The Apostle Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You've heard this many times. He had some kind of ailment. We don't know how he got it. It appears to be, appears to be, we are not certain about that, some kind of eye ailment. Whatever whatever it was, it just humiliated him to his socks. I mean, if you're, I'm a public person. What I mean is I get up here on Sundays in front of you instead of sitting there with you. I have so much B.O., you might be glad. Anyway, when you're a public person, you don't want to look real ugly. And whatever this was just offended his sensibilities. 
So he prayed, 1 Corinthians 12, 9, 7 through 9. He prayed three times. Lord, I've got to appeal and appear in public all the time. I don't want to come out looking like a mess. Will you take that away? I'm paraphrasing. You can read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. No, I will not. But why? Because I want to tell you, and you need to learn, and Paul did learn, did he learn it. You know, it's from a platform of weakness that my power is made perfect. I want you to glory in your weakness and not your assets. And sometimes that's exactly where we need to be. Exactly. One of the best preachers I've known in my lifetime, really artful, was a professor I had in seminary. And there was some deal in New York City. He grew up in the streets. And I guess he got beat up. But as an adult, he was severely ugly. Had I been him, I'm not far from him. <laughs> but at least I have one out there ahead of me. Had I been him, I would have hated, dreaded getting up in front of people. He didn't get up with any flash dance. Look at him, how handsome. None of that. But he wasn't speaking five minutes before you forgot all of that. You would every time. He was really outstanding. The Lord sometimes will put those of us who are better educated. I do have that in my favor. <laughs> those of us who may be, I don't, but who may be nice looking, those who may be charismatic, not in a theological sense, but you just draw people. Those who are very talented. Knew a Christian lady one time who actually prayed. I won't go any further than that, not here. Who actually prayed before a group that she didn't know why God gave her all her talents. Boy, did she get humbled. So you've got these assets going for you. You depend on them, sometimes through testing. The Lord wants to humble us who may have a tendency through this asset or that asset or a combination of assets to get a little proud. We need to be lowly in the sight of the Lord. Well, this personal crisis was acute. I remember my talk about crisis my late brother, Bernard, four of us, he was second in line. I was first. And uh, my mother had had a terrible stroke, and then she fell like a fir tree, brain bleeding. And so it's really the end. And uh, we were outside the hospital, my three brothers, my two brothers and I, three of us. And it was coming. They were going to ask us whether we wanted to pull the plug. She had, barring an absolute miracle, she had no real life left. She could be technically alive. I'll never forget Bernard. He was stalking as we were walking, stalking up the steps. He said, I can't believe this, he agonized. Never did I think I might be confronted with that kind of choice. 
I mean, he's a very self-sufficient, rich guy. Had a big place in business. I didn't think I'd be confronted with such a choice. You hear about it all the time, he said, but to face it personally is a whole different matter. I'm not prepared for this, he said angrily. The dilemma weakened him more than, but he wasn't a believer. But he came face to face with his limits. And sometimes the Lord's going to put us there, face to face with our limits. Philip was a non was a modern technological man, technocratic man. For all he had witnessed, all his intellectual resources, reflexes locked him into strictly natural solutions. Jesus set him up by posing a problem for which there was no available natural solution. The scale of the need beggared his resources. Andrew, as I said, was a slight improvement. In this brainstorming session between Jesus and these early disciples, he had at least the audacity to mention something totally absurd, which he immediately recognized. There was a little boy with his small provisions, five barley loaves, and two dinky little fish. Andrew was not slow on the uptake. He knew how dumb it sounded. Many times we've been there, haven't we? We say something, we know it's dumb. But we're just reaching. So why did he risk sounding so stupid or even naive by mentioning it? Maybe you've done it. I've done it. I suggest he had already seen enough of Jesus in action to begin to get a glimpse in some faint way that when you factor Jesus into the equation, a little can go very far. Yet despite this spark of faith, his way of thinking was still so conditioned by the regularities of nature that he could not sustain his grip on this truth. Naturalism had trained him by the temporal order of things to make him blush at his words, and he immediately withdrew the boy's provisions as a part of the solution. But Jesus, big Jesus, seized the moment, as he does sometimes in our case, to fan the spark of faith into greater strength. Give it a little muscle. That was a lesson he wanted very much to get across with his disciples. When you factor him into the equation, a little can go very far. Remember that. And that's because he is the ruler and not the servant of nature. Remember that. He makes the laws that govern nature. He is not himself bound by them. Finally, testing raises our consciousness as to the greatness of his person. That's what happens here. This purpose works hand in hand with the former. In bringing us up short, I've been brought up short many, many times. In bringing us up short, God has the opportunity to magnify in our eyes his power and provision. God loves to work, as I said, from a platform of weakness. You know, in this church, I don't want this misunderstood. I've always, it's just my nature. I'm a due diligence guy. And I believe God's an orderly God. And I hate it when things are not organized or not done orderly. Used to be I'd people, we got over that. People would put up signage in the church and then take a, a 
piece of tape, put it up on a door, and it was scribbled. I'd go back to staff meetings, let's not do that. It looks hokey, hillbilly. You know, let's make signs. That's just my nature. Well, I tried to think like a CEO. And so I sat down. I sat down. Spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks putting together a notebook that thick, very organized, how we can improve and how we could do things better in this church, improve things, worship, facility, you name it. Detailed plan. This is how we're going to upgrade our act. Well, as the technical CEO of the church, I'd pass it off to staff. You'd have thought I handed them some mystery document. They could never bring it off. I'd even tell them how to bring it off, how to do it. It just wouldn't happen. Still, I'd remember some of it and do it. But the point is, I was proud of myself for the way I operated. I mean, not proud in a really ugly way, but kind of proud of myself. I put this together. This is good. It still is. <laughs> it's good, humanly speaking. But I kind of got over myself after a while. And I said, you know, don't want to go the other way and be disorganized. <clears throat> I don't want to always think, well, okay, how can we improve this and improve that? I found, I've been here a long time, I found that most of the things that happen are God's work and not mine. We get the right people, and we've got some very right people. I look back, that wasn't Jim Smart's. That was God's wisdom. Certain things went well. I look around this church now, so many good things happen in this body but they don't happen because I sat there in my CEO seat and caused it to happen by my grand strategies. Sometimes God just has to raise our consciousness of the greatness of his purpose. And I thank God regularly, Lord, when things go well, you did this. I didn't have the smarts to do it. I didn't plan it. I didn't think of it. That's a place that many of us need to go. Some of you have got great gifts. You've got great talents. But that's something we all need to learn. And testing gets us there. Finally, I want you to notice that Jesus, what was Jesus testing by his answer to Philip? When he said, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Jesus knew it all, knew it already. In this case, he was trying to raise Philip's consciousness up a notch because he wanted to bring Philip's, Philip to the end of himself as well as the other disciples. Hey, we don't have a, we got a crisis here. We don't have an answer here. Jesus set him up to realize, to gain in consciousness of his person. Listen, we never have a need that he cannot meet. You may run into a business problem, big problem. It's overwhelming. You may run into a health problem. As I say, you may run into a family problem. All of us have run into stuff. 
I may not have included you in the list. But you've never run into a, a need that is too big for Christ. You've never faced a problem that's too big for him to solve. You've never faced a crisis too big for him to dissolve. You've never or are not facing a threat too challenging for him to overcome. Now, I don't know how he do it. It's not rocket science to say sometimes he'll lead you through it. Sometimes he'll get in front of it and solve it, and sometimes he'll lead you around it. But in any case, if you're his, he cares for you. But he will test you. He is testing you. Many of you in this room, you're hurting right now as I'm speaking. And sometimes you just feel overwhelmed. But nothing's too big for him. That's what I, Jim Andrews, your pastor, always have to keep in mind. I tell you, some things kill me. They just kill me. But I just have to let go and let God, to use an old hackneyed but still valid phrase, let him do it and wait on God. Finally, not finally, next, note Jesus' conservation of God's works. In verses 12 and 13, he said, would you go out and gather up all those? You're asking us, Lord, to go pick up trash. <laughs> this is not a Green New Deal thing. Not at all. You're not asking us to do the work of city workers. I want you to go up there and I want you to pick up all those scraps. You've got baskets. Put them in it. Why? Why? I'm going to tell you why. Most of you know where I'm going. You've been here. Because he did not want those 12 apostles to readily forget what he had done. They picked up 12 baskets full and everywhere they went, I don't know for how long, they looked down on those baskets. They had provisions, but that was not the big point. They remembered. Because those guys were in the habit, as we are, of easily forgetting what God has done. I do not have time to go back and explain this. I have some times in the past. But one of the most dangerous things that we get into as believers is when we take God's blessings and we think, thank you, Lord, I so appreciate that. You're a good God, and he is a good God. You're so gracious. And we immediately tell our friends, call our mother, father, and tell them, you know, brother and sister, you know what God has done. And then we forget, I've done that. I've done that. And one time it almost got me into big trouble. I was angry. I was rebellious. Can't tell you the whole story. Never had been that way in my life toward God. I was mad. Because at that moment, God wasn't performing the way I expected him to. I didn't say, okay, I'm out. But I wasn't too far from it. When the Lord in his way spoke to my heart and said, Jim, aren't you forgetting a few things? And then the Spirit of God brought him rushing back to mind, the 12 baskets full. I looked at my basket. And I remembered, and I was so ashamed. So ashamed. I had forgotten. Big deals. Don't forget to fill your basket. 
You know what it's called, don't you? Polishing God's monuments. Jesus wanted them, it's not an apt metaphor, to polish those 12 baskets and to remember the things that God has done. It'll keep you out of enormous trouble in your walk with God. It'll relieve a lot of stress when you remember. Just recently, not that Aussie was at fault. When we were talking, we talk a lot when we're on a especially long drive. And I just said, honey, she's finding, I guess, older people. I, I figure it would happen to me when I get old. <laughs> but older people, I think, Aussie, when she was younger, was one of the most, they would do all kinds of things. I mean, she and her dad, they would do all kinds of things. I just think, you're crazy. <laughs> and she was crazy. She'd do daring things. But today, being older, you realize what can happen. And I have to tell her every once in a while and remind myself, oh, say we cannot live in fear. We cannot live in fear. Besides, we've seen what God can do. You cannot live in fear. You've got to see what God can do. Finally, I want you to notice in verses 14 and 15 how Jesus rejected ego trips. You had some people here. What did he come for? To be received as their Messiah. But these people were on the wrong page. And Jesus had just performed this great sign. Oh, man. Stupefied everybody. Set their eyes rolling in their heads. They wanted somebody to conquer the Romans. They wanted somebody to set the Jewish people free. We got him. Look at this. Look at this power that he has. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-oh, they're not going where they need to go. So he hightailed it up, if I may speak that way, up into the mountains to get away from them and avoided that. Sometimes in your life as you walk with God, the biggest problem is not the stresses upon you. The biggest problem is not demotion. The biggest problem is not getting defunded in life. It's not getting canceled. The biggest problem you've got is being promoted. Prosperity and promotion and ambition, fulfilled ambition, are some of the greatest spiritual downfalls a person can have. My dad didn't help him any with my brother Bernard when Bernard did not know God. He'd come home and tell the parents about his next great promotion. And they were usually pretty great, money and everything else. And my parents would say, well, Bernie, that's good. We're proud of you. But until you know Jesus, it's all nothing. We got to remember what life is about. It is about us being what we're called to be. It's not being a big dog. It's not getting on a big stage. It's not having a big name. It's not having a big house. It's not a big income. God may give you all those things. He did to Abraham and he did to a lot of others. But that's not what it's about. Let's not forget what it's about. Jesus knew what his coming was about. They wanted the wrong kind of Messiah. His heart hurt because they had not received him as a true Messiah. 
but he wasn't going to fall for this devil's trick. Don't you either. Sometimes that promotion, I've seen it. I've been here long enough to see them. See people, oh, they get the big promotion. They get the big job. Well, they're going, Jim, we're out of here. We're going, we're going to wherever. I follow them. Some of them are good stories. Oh, I wish you hadn't left. Here you were being nourished and cared for. Now you're in a place where that's not happening. You made the wrong choice. Sometimes it's just to stay and just to be. Grow where you're planted. Not to take that big job. Not to go that New York kind of place. Just be. Sometimes it's the best choice you could possibly make. Well, if you're not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, you've seen one person receive Christ. He did it before he got here. Make a public testimony. We'd like for you to do so too. We'd like to see you know him. By grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his model for us. We pray that we may learn the lessons that are embedded in this text and that we may walk with you. We pray for any who are here who do not know the Savior. We pray that your spirit may work in such a way, bring light to their darkened souls, to cause them to see their sin and need of repentance and to receive him by faith. We ask it in the name of the Savior. Amen.